From the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, this is Solace Radio. Shalom and welcome to the Wild Branch Ministry and welcome to uh, our newest series in which we are going to discuss the subject of creation and evolution. We're going to talk about uh, not only the obvious uh, differences between the two, because most people that believe in uh, a God who created all things and those who believe that uh, uh, human life appeared by a series of uh, uh, chemical processes and reactions taking place over billions of years, both sides of this issue know that um, there is no middle road between these two things, even though there are, are times when we have uh, some Christians uh, teaching, trying to combine the two. I hope you'll clear, clearly see by the time we get done that you cannot, the whole idea of theistic evolution and so forth is is not scriptural. There's no way that you can reconcile these two things. They are irreconcilable views. And there's testimony from Christians and uh, evolutionists alike that back that up. What I what I hope to show you uh, as we go through this is that not only is there a difference in creation and evolution, and that I believe the scriptures teaches that we need to understand that these that this whole concept of evolution, which I believe was started in the beginning, in the very beginning, is uh, part of what's going to be taking place in the last days. I believe that the second epistle of Peter in the second and third chapter um, make a connection, a clear connection between the false prophets and the false teachers and the heresies and the denying of the way of the truth in the latter days is directly associated with a, a view of, of of creation from the beginning. Uh, because quite frankly, if the if the natural things are evolving, then there's no reason to believe that the spiritual things are, are not evolving as well. And uh, I'm going to suggest several things. I'm going to suggest that there is uh, organic evolution, and there is what I call theological evolution. I'm going to suggest that the evolutionary thinking process, even though most Christians, most religious people in this country who rely on the Bible for their religious background would not admit to believe in, in, uh, in evolution, but at the same time, it has affected and infected our theology, it's, it, mainly because it's infected our culture. And I'm going to show you uh, many of the parallels of evolutionary thinking, organic evolutionary thinking, with um, doctrinal evolutionary thinking as well. Because it's this, it's Paul who said that which comes first is natural, then that which is spiritual. I think God, uh, even when he was on, on the earth in the flesh, when uh, Yeshua was speaking to Nicodemus, and he said, how can I uh, teach you uh, uh, heavenly things if you will not trust the earthly ones? I think I've quoted that many times in the past. I think those are very subtle ways of telling us that uh, the natural and and a perversion of the natural perverts the spiritual. And if you don't have a good grasp of the beginning, you're not going to have a good grasp of the end. And I'm not talking about just how we should behave today, but I'm talking about prophecy and and uh, developing in, into the various prophetic scenarios that we have um, uh, today in many books and in, in, in bookstores and so forth, dealing with the the eschatology, the end times. But I'm going to suggest that if you don't have a literal view of the beginning, then you're also not going to have a literal view of the end. If you allegorize the beginning, 
then you're going to allegorize the end. And that comes comes forth, of course, from a, a scripture that I've quoted many times in the past, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. By the way, let me say that um, I'm going to do my best to stick uh, during this series with the uh, English, if you will, and Latin and Greek names of the Bible, the ones that we're used to, rather than the Hebrew, because I realize that a lot of people uh, may want to look things up and a lot of people, uh, as a matter of fact, this is just feedback lately, that uh, using the Hebrew names of the Bible has confused people uh, a lot of times. So I will use the English terms. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, when the Lord says that he has declared the end from the beginning, that uh, that was his a very clear way, not so subtle, but very clear way of, of showing us that a good grasp of the beginning is going to help us uh, and I think this is an understatement, going to help us to understand uh, the end of all things. I believe that uh, we're going to also talk about uh, um, and the anthropic principle. We're going to talk about punctuated equilibrium. We're going to use some scientific terms. We're going to talk about uniformitarianism. And we're going to talk about how the geologic column, the so-called geologic column and so forth, uh, that all these uh, uh, so-called scientific evolutionary um, theories um have infected our theology, the way we look um, at um, how time has gone on. And we'll talk about that in more detail. I, I believe that there has uh, been basically a Pavlovian response uh, to things in our culture that many of us have just naturally assumed. I read this thing. As a matter of fact, I'm in, uh, in the middle right now of, of having a little uh, soundbite war going on in, in our local paper with me and some other people on this very issue of, of evolution and creation. And the reason I got involved in it is because I, when, when reading the first article that came out, which was by someone who was supporting evolution, they were, uh, automatically making assumptions that, um, are not scientific. And I'm going to suggest we do that theologically too. We make assumptions. And of course we build our theology on a false base, on those assumptions. For, uh, for instance, in our culture, it's come to the point now that evolution just equals science. I mean, you may walk up to somebody and start talking about them about evolution, and quickly evolution will morph into a discussion about science. And sometimes you have to back up and go, well, well wait, wait a minute. We're not talking about science in the Bible here, because any good student of Scripture who has even um, a cursory knowledge of, of good science, of good empirical science, we'll define that term later, knows that the Bible is in, is in harmony with science. It's evolution that I'm talking about. And the reason why they get confused with that is because we've already already been trained by our culture that evolution equals science and creation equals religion. And that's the paradigm, that's the model that's presented by our society, which I believe started in Isaiah chapter 14, by the way. I don't believe Darwin started evolution. Uh, and of course, we, we may stop at this point and, uh, define these terms for, for a moment, uh, just in, uh, a very simple terms. Uh, when we talk about creation during these next, uh, four tapes or CDs, whatever you're listening to, I am talking about an all powerful God who created all things and then set forth laws that like kind would produce like kind. I believe he created them just the way he said, perfect and complete, and they were finished, and they multiply after themselves, and that all the things that we see are a product of God's creation, creating them whole and complete in the beginning, as opposed to the evolutionary point of view. Okay, oh, by the way, let me add, 
I believe, about 6,000 to 10,000 years ago. I'll even give a range there. Now, on the other hand, as opposed to evolution, which believes that uh, we came into being by a series of process, uh, by a big bang in the beginning and a, and a process of chemical reactions and primordial soupons and uh, eventually um, uh, things heated up and energy, uh, perhaps lightning bolts uh, struck the water and, and put energy in the water and, and, the, and they uh, came to life. In other words, not, uh, living matter coming from non-living matter and then do a, a series of um, um, evolutionary processes uh, taking place over billions of years, we end up with modern man. Okay, so there's our basic definitions of creation and evolution. Nothing I said uh, just now with respect to creation or evolution, as far as what I just said, uh, can be empirically proved scientifically. Okay, because empirical science means something that you can in in t put in a laboratory and you can uh, test. In a laboratory, in, in controlled conditions, you can't control something, uh, you can't put something and test it under controlled conditions that happened 6,000 years ago any more than you can uh, 40 billion or 4 or 5 billion years ago. Okay, So none of these things can be tested uh, with, through empirical science. But the evidence, the evidence of what took place when it began needs to be good empirical science. And we've just automatically applied evolution to science. We do the same thing in our theology, in our religious circles, uh, in our culture. Uh, Jews equals Israel. I mean, just automatically, before we even start a con conversation, Jew equals Israel. We've got the Feast of the Lord and the Sabbath are Jewish things. For example, the church equals New Testament. The, the Jew equals Old Testament. Law equals Old Testament. Grace equals, you see, these kind of things. We have the same thing going on theologically because I hope to show you not only are we going to discuss some wonderful and some very interesting and provocative scientific things uh, uh, during this series, but we're also going to compare them to how things have evolved uh, religiously as well. So why is this? Why would this be important to messianics? Well, once again, if the end is revealed in the beginning. And the beginning is not literal, then why should the end be literal? And then we just have the ability to allegorize everything. I believe that the earth was designed as the, from God's point of view, as the center of the universe. Not the view of Coper Copernicus, where we're the sun, okay, and so forth, and is, is still out there in, in outer space and all everything's supporting it. No, no, I believe that the earth is the center of our universe. And, and the reason why I say earth is because of us. Because I believe human beings, and we're going to talk about that in a, a principle called the anthropic principle later on, that everything that's going on in this earth, everything around it is all designed for a support system for the Messiah. That is all a support system for the Messiah. And of course, the Messiah has a head and a body. Okay, We be in the body, he be in the head, and everything is designed for that. And that is the center. The Messiah is the center of the universe. If you will, I hope to show you that that uh, I'm going that I think the seed of the woman is expressed through creation and the seed of the serpent is expressed through evolution and that it even started with the serpent. I, I lots of people think that Darwin uh, started uh, evolution. He's the one that gets all the, you know, the front page uh, news and so forth, and he gets all the glory for it, if you will. But um, then there's others who believe that it was uh, <clears throat> 
Charles Darwin's grandfather, actually, uh, that, that taught him all this uh, stuff, and that there were other uh, so-called scientists in the early 1800s that, that proffered the same kind of ideas. And, and these things are very true. Um, from a human point of view, it was uh, before Darwin. But I'm going to suggest that it was long before Darwin. I, I'm going to suggest that it, that it, that it came forth from the Greeks, uh, shortly before the Messiah. It came through, uh, um, the, uh, writings of Homer. It came down through the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. And before that, it was down through the Egyptians. And before that, it was, uh, it was, uh, through, uh, Cain and, um, and, um, Ishmael and Esau. As a matter of fact, I hope to trace it all the way back to, once again, those two seeds in the beginning. It comes from the seed of the serpent. As a matter of fact, if you read Yeshahu or Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 17, you're going to see right in the middle of that a, a section which is um, where I believe evolution started. It's in Hasatan's fall, actually technically Lucifer's fall. And the him being renamed because of a change of status, which which is, happens quite frankly frequently through the scriptures, and that the statements that he makes, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. I think those are evolutionary statements. They're 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 prophetic statements. I will, uh, if you will, progress to be like you. I mean, in other words, Hasatan wasn't around in the beginning when God. Uh, I mean, God's eternal. And so uh, Hasatan was not around to see God get created. Um, and so the adversary has has no clue uh, how God came into being. I believe, however, that he thinks that God progressed to become God. I would not be surprised that um, the lie in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is the same lie in the beginning, the same lie that's in the garden. And uh, in which Hasatan, of course, said to uh, Chava, uh, Eve, has God said? That, that's that's the how things uh, begin. Not only with him, but it's something that he, he instills, I believe, in all men down through our Adamic nature, our tendency, our base nature to always say, hath God said? And that uh, he even said to Eve that God surely knows that if you eat, that you your eyes shall be open and you shall be as God. So this whole evolutionary process is not just a matter of how um, certain processes took place uh, for men uh, and human beings to be up on the earth where we came from, but it's a principle that's invaded and infected uh, everything on the planet. And I hope to show you much of that as, as we go through this. Now, I want to uh, quote a few verses here before we begin. Let's start with Job chapter 12. In Job chapter 12, I want to sh uh, sh take you to a few places where I believe that uh, Yahweh is showing us the relationship between his nature and his creation. You've heard me talk about this before, and I'll quickly repeat it one more time. And that is, I believe and teach, and I have in my in my past series, that all theology, that all of God's nature, his desire, his will, his purpose, his essence, and his prophecy is all found embedded in the opening chapters of the book of Bereshit or Genesis. That all his theology is found embedded in there. That he placed it in all the natural things in the beginning. That God, and and um, I'll say that again. That all of God's teaching about who he is and how things operate and what's good and bad, bad and right and wrong and how things work. 
were all placed in the natural things in the beginning. That's one, one of the reasons why Paul said that which comes first is natural than that which is spiritual. And since spiritual, according to 2 Corinthians 4.18, is something unseen, and the unseen things are eternal, but the seen things are temporary, you and I live in a world that is temporary. We are dealing with the things that are seen. And God has placed in the seen things our understanding of the unseen things. You know why? Because we can't see the unseen things. His word is something we cannot see. It is unseen. John 6.63, my words are spirit and they are life. Spirit is eternal. It is incorruptible. And so God revealed these things to men and the natural things in the beginning, knowing full well that the nature, the trees and the flowers and the plants, the vegetation, the rivers, the mountains, the streams and so forth are uh, entities that cannot choose to disobey God. So when God embeds in them his truth about who he is, in the natural things, he knows that they don't have the ability to be able to choose to cast them off. If he would have given given them to human beings in the beginning, we have the ability to choose. What do you think men would have done with God's word? Perverted it. What do men do with God's word? Perverted it. But what is God's backup plan? It's right outside your window. And, and gradually over the series that I teach for however long the Lord has me in this ministry, I'm going to keep revealing those kind of things in every single th- series, no matter what the subject is, But b- because I believe it's imperative to see. I believe that God knew that uh, men would distort his words. And so he placed it in something that could not be messed with. And he placed it, uh, that's why he put uh, his uh, calendar, if you will, uh, in the stars. And in the celestial um, entities in the heavens, because he knew that no matter how many times man went to the moon, he, that man is incapable of throwing these uh, planets off their flight plan, if you will, that they will remain faithful in the heavens forever. And that is the witness of God. And we're going to talk about that right now, because I believe God um, relates these two things in the beginning, because he knows that we're going to need to understand them in the end. In Job chapter 12, starting with verse 7, for instance, it says, But ask now the beast, and they shall teach you, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell you, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach you, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto you, who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? With the ancient is wisdom and in length of days, understanding. And then it goes on to say, with him is wisdom and strength, and he hath counsel and understanding. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 7, we're going to bounce around here for a little bit. Hope you don't mind. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 7. This is a verse that tells us that, that the stork in the heaven and the turtle and the crane and the swallow, they know their appointed times, uh, that they observe the time of their coming. He says, and they know their appointed times. They know these things. It's instilled in them. But humans who get to choose. Here's the last part. But my people know not the Torah of Yahweh. My people know not the Torah of, of Yahweh. So the creation knows, and that's where he put it. That's why it's so important to understand the things around us, the things that we deal with every day. Because no matter where you live on this planet, there you have nature. It's not like you can say, well, 
I never got to see any of this stuff. I, I, no one ever told me about anything. No, God is, God has presented his truth in everything that we see if we'll just open our eyes. Uh, just a couple more quotes here in Psalm chapter eight, Psalm chapter eight, verses, uh, one through nine. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who has set your glory above the heavens. Then he goes on in verse three, he says, when I consider the heavens and I see the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. Then he goes on to say that, 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 uh, uh, all the sheep in verse seven, all the sheep and oxen, and yes, all the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and fish of the sea and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And this is a, an example. If you, especially if you go through the Psalms, you're going to see that God is consistently and constantly re, uh, uh, comparing you and I and his creation and his truth and his doctrine with birds and fish and sea and sheep and lambs and, and uh, rivers and, and, and trees and vegetation. He's constantly doing this. He does it in the beginning and he does it especially in the Psalms as well. And then, of course, just a few pages later in Psalm chapter 19, it says, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day it utters speech and night unto night it shows knowledge. Now listen to that. Day unto day, every day it utters speech. It speaks to you and it reveals and shows knowledge. And he says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. No matter where you are, no matter what language you speak, God is speaking to you. Doesn't matter whether you speak Hebrew or English or, or what. No matter what you speak and no matter where you live, where you live, God is talking to you. And then in verse four, he says, their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun. Then he goes on in verse, uh, uh seven, um, to say that the, the Torah of Yahweh is perfect. It converts the soul. The testimony of, of Yahweh is pure, making wise the simple and so on and so forth. Now, an understanding of the literal creation in the beginning is imperative because the end also uses terms that are given in the beginning. Even the Messiah, if you remember in John chapter 5, I believe verses 46 and 47, the Messiah says, if you would have believed Moses, you would believe in me because Moses wrote of me. Why? Because the Messiah is the center of the universe. Everything's centered around him and his body. Everything is designed for human life on earth. Everything is designed for human life. on earth. Once again, we're going to talk about that when we talk about the anthropic principle uh, later on. And so what he's saying, of course, we know it's that it, we know that it's Moses who wrote the beginning. He wrote those first four chapters of Genesis, for, for example. And so the Messiah, once again, is not just saying he wrote of me, but he's also saying, if you believe him. If you believe what's in the beginning, then you'll believe what I'm going to tell you. And as I said so many times before, when you read the parables and you read um, uh, eschatological verses out of the writings of the of the ancient prophets and in the New Testament in the book of Revelation, you're going to consistently uh, see things that have something to do with that seed in the very beginning, that seed of the woman. Uh, that is a theological thing going on, but God's embedded our understanding of it in the natural things. And that's why the parables of the end have everything to do with harvest and feast and festivals and brides and bridegrooms and fathers and sons and daughters, all having to do uh, with this seed. 
And that principle of the seed is imperative to grasp because evolution stands firmly against that, very firmly against that. In the end, in the book of Revelation, of course, we read about wonders in heaven. We read about signs in the earth and darkness and the moon into blood. And it talks about mountains and rocks falling. It talks about the heavens departing as a scroll as opposed to the heaven being stretched out. So when you, you begin to understand these things departing as a scroll, when you begin to see how it came into being in the first place. Because when you take a scroll and it's rolled up, when you stretch it out and you open it up, okay, as it, as, as it rolls out and you spread your arms across the table, he's describing heaven like a scroll. And in the beginning, he says that he stretched out the heavens. And the end, he says he's going to roll them up like a scroll. Now, one of the scientific theories that's, um, that's being, um, uh, reported today, and it's a theory. In other words, it hasn't been proven yet, but it's based upon science. And, uh, the scientific name for it is his event horizons and so forth. And we don't need to get into scientific aspects, but it does support it does support um, this God stretching out the heavens. And the idea is that is that in the beginning, six to ten thousand years ago, I mean when not in the beginning, in the beginning I believe is, is an eternal term, um during the making uh, uh in the six days when God is making and forming and, and so forth and calling out and letting be, during that process that there are, uh, they have some evidence that it's possible that the celestial glories that is the sun the moon the stars the planets and so on and so forth could have been 50 more than 50 times closer than they are now now that's quite a lot when you consider distances perhaps more than 50 times closer than they are now in the beginning and that they were uh, stretched out in other words, and then that's, and that's the term that, that's used in the scriptures that God stretched out the heavens. And so from an evolutionary point of view, and in those who believe that the earth and the universe is billions of years old, well, we know scientifically that the planets and the stars and many of the celestial glories as we look to them at them with stronger and stronger telescopes, we know that they are hundreds of thousands and millions of light years away. And that whatever would occur uh, a million light years away would take a million light years uh, for us to be able to see it with our eyes. But there's becoming evidence now that it's possible that at that time that things were much closer than they were and that God stretched them out, okay, and like a scroll, unrolled them and stretched them out like a scroll. And that the earth isn't, and the universe isn't billions of years old, that everything was closer then, and then uh, they were stretched out by God. Now, there's two verses I'd like to quote, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5. This is just a theory, okay? So I'm not saying there's um, that this is rock-solid concrete science. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5, it says, Thus saith God, Yahweh, he created the heavens, and he stretched them out. He who spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he who gives breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk upon it. And just a couple of chapters later, it says in 45.12 of Isaiah, I have made the earth and I've created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their host have I commanded. 
Now the host of the heavens, of course, would be the celestial glories, the, the planets and so forth. Okay, now this is a theory, just a theory right now. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, the, if that's the way it happened. It goes on in uh, Revelation to talk about uh, a third part of the sun, moon, and the stars were smitten, and a third part of the trees, and so forth. And so they're using, I believe, things that we must see literally, and that symbolize or allegorize all of these things. Not that there's not some uh, homiletic teaching that can be seen in these things, but I believe they are literal things that will happen in the beginning. Uh, also, before we go on, I would like to... Um, uh, talk about uh, the difference between empirical science and imperial science. And then I want to have uh, uh, give you a few quotes here uh, from the so-called uh, scientist and evolutionist, um, especially some of the more modern ones even. The biblical narrative is in harmony with true empirical science. E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L. Empirical. Empirical science means science that can be tested and proven. It's something that we have direct knowledge of it through a, a, a testing process. Okay, like you took it in a lab, like I said, under controlled conditions and so forth, and you can test something. That's empirical science, as opposed to what we're calling imperial science. Imperial, I-M-P-E-R-I-A-L. And that imperial science is a system that controls your thinking. That's what we are subject to today. A scientific system, so-called scientific system, that controls the way we think. And I gave you one example earlier. We've been trained by the system that evolution equals science and creation equals religion. And so when we want to talk about creation, nobody wants to talk about it because they want to talk about science. They don't want to talk about religion. See, they've got their little religion box over here and they put creation in it. Okay? They've got their scientific box over here. And and uh, they want to talk science. They don't want to talk religion. And that's why sometimes you don't get anywhere with these people. They just shut you off because they've been trained that a, a creation and intelligent design is a religious concept, whereas evolution is a scientific concept. Um, as I said before, evolutionary thinking, I believe, was long before uh, Darwin, and it has infected and affected uh, our science, of course. But I believe I'm, uh, we're also going to talk about how it's affected morality uh, or immorality, the way we treat our fellow man. It's, it's, it's responsible for abortion. It's, it, it makes a difference on how we see marriage and, and wars and health and nutrition, especially nutrition. And it's, it's the background for most of the major big religions, uh, in the world. Uh, you, if you know anything about these religions, you, then you know that, uh, the evolutionary thinking process is part of the background and basis for Buddhism, for Confucianism, for Taoism and Hinduism. Sikhism and Shintoism and animism and so forth, all those isms over there, uh, the New Age religions, that's the background of that. I'm going to suggest even the popular religion in my state, Utah, Mormonism, an evolutionary belief system, because that's what evolution is. It morphs into religion, or it's the background of religion, because that's what evolution is. It's a belief system, a belief system that must be developed by people who refuse to recognize an, an all-powerful creator who created all things. Because once they do, then they realize that by definition, that makes them responsible to that creator and God. And so mankind who refuses to believe in God has to come up with another belief system. 
And since neither one of us were there, whether it was 6,000 years ago or 6 billion years ago, since neither one of us, none of us here uh, living right now were there, then it's a, a belief system on both sides. I'm going to suggest to you that the evidence is hugely in favor of creationism and not, or intelligent design and not uh, evolution. I find it fascinating that here we have a book written by a God who says he was there. Him, we don't believe, but yet we have books by scientists who all admit that they weren't there. Them, we do believe. Now, I suggest to you that there may be something flawed in that view right there. Now, let's go on. Um, Oh, by the way, I think, I think I wanted to, to, to give you a few, I want to start out with uh, just a couple of quotes here. And you keep these quotes in mind as we go through, uh, this study. And, uh, because you're going to see some contradictory views by so-called scientists. I think that's another one of the things we've been duped into thinking is that, that science, science is in, in agreement, uh, w- with the evolutionary principle. <laughs> and I can tell you that's far from the truth. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why I, so speedily answered uh, in our local paper uh, um, this um, this article written in support of evolution because this woman basically said that very thing that um, that science is uh, evolu- uh, evolution and scientists believe in evolution and it's the religious people that believe in intelligent design and nothing could be further from the truth and I listed her that there are biologists and biochemists and physicists and astrophysicists and astronomers and and uh, chemists and and so forth and just, you can just go through all this, uh, the scientific background uh, of these people who believe in intelligent design there are many books written that you can get in bookstores i will list them by the way in the bibliography that's going to go along with this in some of the resources of of listing of scientists who believe and their testimonies of why they believe some print their names uh, as a matter of fact most print their names but there are some that, who don't, uh, and the reason is is because uh, a fear of um, of uh, government grants, government grants being withdrawn from them if word gets out that they have a religious belief, because then they won't get their government grants. Uh, but most of them do list their names and are very and very proud of it as well. One of the quotes is uh, from biologist Stanley Beck, and here's what he said in Bioscience Magazine. Uh, October of 1982, and I quote, no central scientific concept is more firmly established in our thinking, our methods, and our interpretation than that of evolution. Now, the reason why I quoted that to you is because uh, that's that's one of the extreme thinking processes of our scientific community, but he's honest. He lays it right on the line. The only problem he has is he says no central scientific concept and you you can't mix that with evolution and i hope to show that as we go but he does admit that that their understanding of science is and their methods and their interpretation of what science tells them is based upon evolution in other words the belief system comes first what we think and what we believe uh because none of us were there so we don't know so uh is going to determine how the evidence is going to come out and i think you're going to see that a lot uh theologians do it or um um, we all do it, even even as um, as uh, messianic teachers or whatever. We have to be uh, very careful that uh, uh, we rein ourselves in and 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 um, be aware of the fact that we can be capable of making our conclusion our premise. 
In other words, uh, going in with the idea that, that our conclusion is going to match what we're looking for. Uh, sometimes there are anthropologists and archaeologists that go out there uh, with a preconceived bias that um, the ground is going to, they're going to take out of the ground something that proves that something was uh, 250 million years old. And so when they go out there, that's what they make sure their evidence produces is that something is 250 million years old. So many times we make our conclusion, uh, our premise and our premise, our conclusion. In other words, you don't let the we don't let the bare facts show us what's right or wrong, and you can see that example if you go down even to our museum. We live in what's called dinosaur land in the in the northeastern corner of Utah. It's the location of the Dinosaur National Monument, and I believe the our museum and national monument are unique because I've been to many other museums, and that the way it's designed is you go out to the monument, which is actually outside of Vernal. And the building itself is built around a section of the side of this of, of this mountain in which the paleontologists have been working and have exposed that part of it. And what you see uh, actually in the the building, but around the rock, they have left it just the way they found it. In other words, you see all the scattered bones still embedded in the rock, in the side of the rock. And so you see what they're doing and what they find. But unfortunately, you go inside of the monument or you go into town and go into the museum. And then you see what you normally see um, in many other places in, in our country when you go to dinosaur museums. What you see inside is these displays called dioramas in which you now see these scattered bones turned into a complete family of people, uh, hairy people, nonetheless, uh, out in the uh, rivers and streams and there's mountains and trees and they're searching for food or they're playing and there's pets around them and everything. And, and, and so these dioramas give you the impression that, uh, that this is what they actually found. And this is the purpose. They're, they're supposed to give you the impression. This is what we saw when we out, went out there rather than, uh, these scattered bones all over the place. Obviously, if you saw displays with just dirt, and, and bones embedded everywhere, then you would not be impressed. And so they dress it all up and, and, and make it into something that it is not. And uh, it is very deceiving, believe me. The reason why ours uh, here is unique is because at least you get an opportunity, if you're thinking, if you've got your thinking cap on, at least you can think to yourself, how in the world did they take what they actually saw right out here and come up with that in there? Well, it's all made up. It's all made up from the very scant evidence they draw out of the ground. But that's what they wanted to see, and so that's what they show. Just give you a, a few more quotes. Uh, uh, evolutionary um, biologist uh, A. L. Harrison Matthews, who's a British biologist, in the introduction, no less, of the 1971 reprint of Origin and uh, Origin of the Species, which, of course, was Darwin's book. It's just a reprint. In the introduction, he says, and I quote, the fact, now I'm going to use the word he used, the fact of evolution is the backbone of biology. He's already started off bad. And biology is thus the, in the peculiar position of being a science found on an unproved theory. <laughs> now let me stop right there for a read on. The fact of evolution, and then he, in the, and before he finishes the sentence, he says, founded on an unproved theory. Can you already see what's wrong with this photo right off the bat? And he says, is it then a science or a faith? Belief in the theory of evolution is thus exactly parallel to belief in special creation. 
good of him to admit it. Both are concepts which believers know to be true, but neither up to the present has been capable of proof. Proof. This is the man who wrote the introduction to the reprint of Darwin's On the Origin of the Species. Evolutionist Michael Denton said, and I quote, Evolution is an idea which is more like a principle of medieval astrology than a serious 20th century theory. I'll read that again. Evolution is an idea which is more like a principle of medieval astrology than a serious 20th century theory. Good of him to admit it. PhD physicist Dr. Frederick Hoyle also states, and I quote, now I want you to keep these guys uh, words in mind as we go through some of the things that are presented with evolution as if it's scientific. Quote, the likelihood that the formation of life from inanimate matter is one to a number with 40,000 zeros behind it. I would like to repeat that. The likelihood that the formation of life from inanimate matter is one to a number with 40,000 zeros behind it. You know how large of a number that is? If you sat down right now and wrote the number one and then put 40,000 zeros behind it, it would take you probably all night and all morning just to write the zeros. Do you know what he's trying to say? There is no chance that that happened. Can you imagine uh, going to Las Vegas and taking all the money that you have and laying it down on um, the um, on, on a bet in which your chances of winning were one chance in one with 40,000 zeros behind it? Would you bet your life? You know you would not bet on something like that. You probably wouldn't even go to Las Vegas and bet if your chances were one in 10, much less one with 40,000 zeros behind it. Okay. So in other words, it's just a, a, a theoretical thing that we talk about. It's just, it's just philosophy and psychobabble. We really, if, if it came down to the nuts and bolts, no evolutionist would put any money on what he's teaching to be true. Now, let me go on. And I'm still quoting. It is big enough, that is big enough to bury Darwin and the whole theory of evolution. There was no primeval soup, neither on this planet or any other, and if the beginnings of life were not random, then they must therefore have been the product of purposeful design. This, unquote, from physicist Sir Frederick Hoyle. Couple more quotes. Biochemist Leslie Orgel says, and I quote, It is extremely improbable that proteins and nucleic acids both of which are structurally complex, arose spontaneously in the same place and the same time. Yet it also seems impossible to have one without the other. And so at first glance, on one might have to conclude that life could never, in fact, have originated by chemical means. That's because she's saying you need all these things there present at the same time. They can't come walking, walking and waltzing in the door one at a time over the billions of years. You have to have them there all at once. In our cellular structure, structure, the DNA, it's from the information from the DNA molecule is what produces the protein molecule. But yet at the same time, science knows that in order to produce a protein molecule, you need the protein molecule. They have to have been there at the same time. In other words, one cannot come before the other or you cannot have life. And we're going to see that once again, I hope to keep overkill on the anthropic principle, but even though that's a controversial subject, it is also backed up by science. It's just the conclusion that's controversial, not the science behind it. It's the conclusion you draw, and you'll see that very clearly uh, when we get to it. 
Okay, let's continue on. In Daniel chapter 1, for example, I believe that the, the scriptures teach us that uh, God expected, or at least the king at that time expected, uh, men that he chose to teach his people to have a knowledge of science, an intimate knowledge of science and understanding of, of knowledge. In Daniel chapter 1, the king goes to uh, choose some use, uh, uh, some people to teach his his tongue and the learning to the Chaldeans, it says. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, I want you to choose young people who uh, in whom there was no blemish, and they are to be well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and gifted in knowledge and understanding science. That's the way it's translated in your King James. And such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. And then he says, if you do that, then uh, I will give you a daily provision of the king's food. You know, every day you're going to eat what I eat. Okay. And I'll nourish you those, uh, those three years and so forth. And of course, who does, who ends up coming to do this? None other than those of the children of Judah. If you remember, they were given the responsibility to maintain Torah, God's understanding and revelation to man and to the universe of who he is and how things are to operate. And so those children end up being Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Of course, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So those are the ones that were chosen. And I find it also fascinating that um, he expected them to, oh, oh, let me let me throw in one more thing. The, the word science there in, in your English, by the way, is translated from the Hebrew word madak, madak. It's a M-A-D-D-A, and there's an ion. So it's basically a mem, a dalit, and an ion. And um, this, the, the root of this word, mada, is yada. And you've heard me talk about yada before. Yada is the Hebrew term for intimate. It's a relationship, not just a, a intellectual kind of experiential knowledge, which is da'at. Okay, yada becomes da'at. Um, but, but rather, yada is an intimate kind of knowledge. And um, and the king expected these men to have this kind of knowledge. I believe God expects us to have this kind of knowledge too. I get, uh, expect that he, w- w- we're supposed to know about the world around us. We're not to be ignorant of these things. And Paul used that word quite a bit. Peter does it too later on, which we, we, will, uh, we will read. But I find it fascinating that to me, it's almost as if the evidence the evidence of how smart and how wise these men were comes right off the bat. When the king brings them in and says, okay, now I'm going to give you uh, the king's food for three years. And every day I'll give you a portion of that. And what did those wise men who understood, had an intimate relationship with true knowledge from God and all wisdom and understanding, what did they say? Uh, no, thanks. We don't want the rich unhealthy. He probably had crab legs and lobster and probably had a big old honey cured ham up there in the corner so forth and probably had just decadent kinds of of uh, desserts and so forth and and uh and they said nope nope remember we're the wise guys as a matter of fact we're just going to eat vegetables as a matter of fact we'll go even so far as is to is to make you a bet uh, we'll make you a bet we'll go 10 days you guys eat your junk okay and we'll eat vegetables and we'll see who's the healthier person at the end of 10 days. Okay. I think that was 
deliberately done to show the king just how wise these men were. Okay, laying that aside, um, they were skilled in science and they had a subsequent understanding of the proper food uh, to eat as well. And I think they were probably dealing with the early versions uh, of some of these other people that uh, that Timothy referred to. Science falsely so-called. Science falsely so-called. Remember in 1 Timothy when Paul is writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy in the, in, in the last, uh, um, last verses there, it says, O Timothy, now listen to what he says. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust. Now remember, he said something similar to that in 2 Timothy chapter 3.16. And when he's speaking to him, when he said now, in chapter 3, verse 14, rather, he says, but continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned that, that from a child you have known the what? Holy scriptures. And what are they to do? They are to, where are they, what are they to do? They are to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in the Messiah. And they're to be profitable for reproof and doctrine and correction and instructions and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly furnished into all that God wants him to do in all good works. Now, once again, oh, I turned too far there. Once again, we turn back to First Timothy now, and he says, keep that which is committed in your trust. That's the scriptures. And avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of knowledge in, in your King James, it's science, falsely so-called. Science or um, knowledge, falsely so-called. Now, that Greek word there, of course, is gnosis, okay? And it's um, it's referring to gnosis. To, it's pseudonymous. Pseudonymous is the word used there. Pseudonymous. Falsely so-called. Because the word science there, knowledge, is from gnosis, okay, which means to know. But the, the falsely so-called is pseudonymous. Pseudo means false. And we're going to see these false teachers and false prophets in Second Peter here in a few minutes. And of course, pneumos is the Greek word for name. It's named that. It's called that. It's, it, has, it has the science name stamped on it, but it's false. It's pseudoscience, if you will. Now, I would also like to give another quote before uh, we get into... Um, uh, some Hebrew and Greek thinking, because I want to compare those two uh, as well, so we can take this into the theological evolution that I'm going to compare it to as well. Uh, just to give you an idea of one of the other reasons why I believe it's imperative to understand these things in the last days is because so, so-called so pseudoscience is going to come up with scientific theories to uh, defend or to give an answer to every man that that's left as to what's going on, especially perhaps the sheep and the goats. You ever, you know, when you read the prophecies and you see all these things going on in the end days and you think to yourself, well, there really doesn't seem to be anything here about the people just going berserk over this. They, they just seem to believe these things. It, it's just, it's just all of a sudden that, uh, these dramatic things are happening. Everybody's kind of taking it in stride. You don't see any evidence. There's going to be, uh, reasons given for these things. And let me give you one of these suggestions right now. Uh, biologist not John Maynard Smith and I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. It's Eors Sazothmary. You don't need to know that. That'll be in the bibliography. Said, and I quote, these are evolutionary biologists. The problem of the origin of life is the problem of how entities with multiplication, variation, and heredity could arise. The starting point being the chemical environment of the primitive earth. 
So I'm going to suggest to you that uh, from a scientific point of view, if man comes from chemicals, which is, this is not true, man comes from God. Man comes from the earth, the ground. But if man comes from chemicals, then it's only natural that we should treat him with chemicals when there's a problem. So we put chemicals in our food, okay, to, to keep the uh, food supply lasting long on our shelves. And then when the person is sick, we give them more chemicals and then we get him hooked on the chemicals. But hey, it's scientific. That's what man is. It's just a bunch of chemical processes. So it would be only be natural to treat him with chemicals. However, the Bible says you come from the earth. And so that's why the things from the earth, the vegetation and the trees and the fields and the, and the fruits and the vegetables, that's what you should use to feed yourself and to cure yourself. When there's, when to, to keep yourself going, you, you take from the same thing that you came from. And to heal yourself, you take things from the same place you came from. That's what the Bible says. So you can see there's a dangerous division between so-called scientific uh, evolutionary thinking and what the scriptures teach is true understanding and true knowledge. And then it goes on to say, but first we must say a word about the possibility this is recent, by the way, that life originated elsewhere in the universe, either accidentally or by deliberate action of extraterrestrials. So now that they've figured out that they can't come up with anything going on on this earth from the things that we can test, okay, to prove to back up evolution, well, then let's, let's, let's jump to the even more absurd and let's start uh, investigating the possibility that uh, E.T. did it, that E.T. started the whole thing. And that actually that's one of the reasons why we're spending billions of tax dollars to send. Uh, I mean, you know, when you add it all up together uh, to send these probes out to Mars to find the origin of life, desperate in the hopes that we're going to find something, anything, as long as it isn't God. That's the point. Okay, before we go on, I want to set down the foundation, some things that I've talked about before. I, I believe that the seed of the woman is expressed in creation. I believe that this is all represented uh, by the Hebrew uh, view the, and the Hebrew thinking process, whereas evolution and the seed of the serpent is represented by the Greek thinking process. Now, once again, my disclaimer, when I say this, my disclaimer is when I say Greek, I do not mean the language. I do not mean the Greek people. I'm talking about a word used in the scriptures. Uh, to describe a worldview that is antithetical to the biblical view. Thinks just the opposite. Hebrew thinking, as I've said before, is very cyclical in its thinking process. Uh, and so is, uh, and, and, and that comes from a creationary point of view. In other words, the God we serve is cyclical, not linear. In cyclical thinking, everything was created perfect and complete in the beginning. And God has embedded in all of that that was complete all his nature and desire and purpose and will, which I talked about earlier. And then he takes those things and repeats them cyclically throughout every generation through his feast and his Sabbath and his covenants. And so he reveals these, these same truths that were given in the beginning. Remember, Isaiah said that the end is in the beginning and he repeats them to each generation. However, Greek thinking and evolutionary type thinking is linear uh, thinking with time. That's where we get timelines. Life is a timeline, starting with a line extending way in the dark, fuzzy past to your left, extending to the dark, fuzzy future, uh, and that man is marching toward a goal. Okay. And of course, that's the whole evolutionary process. As he marches down this line, he gets better and better and better 
uh, rather than what the scriptures teach, which is that everything started perfect. And because of the sin of man, sin came first, not death. Because of the sin of man, things are corrupting. They have a tendency to corrupt themselves. And so in- information must be entered into the system to keep it from corrupting itself. And that information, which is the word that science used, is called Torah. Also, one of the big differences between Hebrew and Greek thinking is that Hebrew is action-oriented. or always moving and doing things. In other words, it uh, reacts to what the mind tells it to do. It just doesn't stop at the mind. And uh, Greek thinking is very static, especially English. As we take the Greek into the English, uh, uh, it's, it's very static and very stoic. Uh, uh, it's moving and doing as, as opposed to thinking and believing. Uh, Hebrew, is, is, as I said, is creationary, where Greek is evolutionary in its thought process. Uh, it's, creation is based upon the pattern of God's law. Evolution is based upon the pattern of man's law. Man makes up, uh, up his rules, the so-called evolutionary scientists and so forth, as opposed to uh, those who are getting their understanding of knowledge from God. And, of course, one of the dramatic uh, evidences of the difference between those two, of course, is that so-called scientific or experts uh, made the Titanic where amateurs made the Ark. Okay? So you can decide which one of those turned out to be uh, the best. Okay, let's going on. Uh, going on. Hebrew is concrete in its thinking process. Greek is very abstract. By concrete, we mean that uh, words spring forth from uh, action, uh, verbs, uh, and nouns come from verbs and so forth. And and so it's the action that's the most important thing. So what determines the base of what the nouns mean comes forth from their verbal roots. And and so you'll notice that when you take them back to their verbal roots that the Hebrew words all speak of very concrete things, things that you can uh, sense with your five senses, okay? And and then you and you can understand things you can touch and feel and smell and taste. And that's uh, an excellent example of that. It's in Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, when it says, For uh, the man who uh, is blessed is the one who meditates on the Torah of his God, and that man shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water whose leaf shall not wither. Now, that's Hebrew thinking, things involving trees and and, and things in the natural, very concrete terms. Uh, uh, Greek, especially, uh, once again, as it, as it goes into English and through the Latin and so forth, becomes a very uh, abstract thinking process. In other words, things are described through abstract words. That's why you read words like grace and love and belief and faith in the Bible. See, those are abstract terms. You take those same words back into the Hebrew and you see they have very concrete meanings. And I go through that in uh, in all my Words Mean Things uh, series. I know this is a very interest, interesting quote from a paleoanthropologist by the name of Henry Fairfield Osborne. He'll also be in the bibliography at the end, in which he certainly recognizes the connection of evolution and Darwinian thinking with Greek uh, philosophy. And uh, and I quote from him. As a matter of fact, this man was not only a supporter and at the Scopes trial in the 1920s. The Scopes trial, if you remember, um, up until the 1920s, most people in this country were still uh, believing or still clinging to the creation model of how life came into being, and how life existed, and, and so on and so forth, based upon the scriptures. And um, there were... Uh, people in some of our modern universities, and there were scientists in the background, 
Um, because, you know, Darwinism was, was, wasn't that old yet, you know, 50 years old or so is, is all it was. And so it had not really crept into our school system yet. Well, a teacher, uh, whose last name was Scopes. I can't remember his first name. I think it was John. I'm not sure though. Uh, began to teach evolution in his classroom. Well, the society at that time was in an uproar about it. And so there was this big trial. Okay. And, um, the, um, one of the supporters of the, of the research at the Scopes trial for the side that was, um, being sued. In other words, those who believed in evolution wanted to teach evolution in school. Here's what they said concerning, uh, this trial. And I quote, when I began the search for anticipations of the evolutionary theory, I was led back to the Greek natural philosophers, and I was astonished to find how many of the pronounced and basic features of the Darwinian theory were anticipated even as far back as the 7th century B.C. Well, now, once again, I'm going to suggest that it goes much further back than that, something that's been passed down. Um, it's a seed. That's been, pa- that's been passed down just like the good seed or the seed of the woman has from uh, the fall of Hasatan is what I believe. Now, I have talked many times about going back to the, the, to the natural things in the beginning, to the more simple things. But I don't want you to think, uh, equate a simple, uh, simple beginning or a more natural beginning to an ignorant primitive beginning. So that's, that's the idea that's, that's proffered is that that uh, because of the evolutionary process of man, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed sometimes how you can turn on PBS or listen to an NPR radio or something and you can see a special on, on evolution, promoting evolution. And then the next program that you see uh, shows the brilliance of the ancient Egyptians in putting up the pyramids, you know, which totally contradicts everything that they just suggested before that suggested, uh, said about as fact in the program before that. But let me just give you a few examples, and then we'll go on to Second Peter. Ancient Peruvians, about the 2000 BC, actually had prosthetics. I mean, they actually performed amputations and had uh, legs and arms and limbs to replace those amp- uh, amputations as well. They performed heart surgery. We have evidence of this. We have evidence of them performing heart and brain surgery, and the tools that you they used back then, which were made of obsidian. The obsidian surgical tools, uh, which we have in our possession today because of modern archaeology, are more sh- are sharper than we can produce today in our modern surgical instruments. In the Mesopotamian cultures, thousands of years ago, they actually had monocles and ocular devices, i.e., glasses. Okay, not not the kind that covered each eye, but a monocle, what we would call a monocle. And these, uh, they've discovered ancient monocles that they would put between their eyes so they could see and understand things more clearly. This could be part of the background, I might add, for what that Moses could possibly be talking about in Deuteronomy chapter six. Uh, as a matter of fact, let's go to that real quick. I'm going to suggest this is a possibility because the rabbinical idea of Deuteronomy 6, chapter 8, and you shall bind, that is the words of God, bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Of course, the typical view of that is, is called, is the phylacteries, the square box that they, that they have wrapped around their head and so forth that they put the scriptures in. I'm going to suggest to you that may not be what was being referred to there. Okay. We'll talk about that another time. But, uh, 
the Egyptians uh, used solder. And, and if you see some of these specials, you know that they, they moved stones the size of houses, miles. And then when they put them up, there was paper-thin space between these great boulders. The ancient Greeks had ancient hydraulic cement. What I'm saying is they could they they made things of cement underwater. We have difficulty doing that today. The ancient Greeks did that. Now, I, I don't want to spend this whole time going over this uh, because I want to uh, move on. But uh, there's plenty of evidence that intelligence back then and wisdom and understanding. I'm not talking about technology. I'm talking about using wisdom and understanding to do things that we use technology for. They did by their own wits back then. And so I'm not talking about a primitive ape-man type of existence, but that's the view that we're all given in our culture. Now, before we go a step further, I want to begin, because I don't think we'll finish it on this uh, on this first CD, but uh, we, will, we will complete it as we begin the next one. I want to talk about uh, some things that uh, Peter says in his epistle, in his second epistle, which uh, in most study Bibles, uh, the the theme that's referenced to this is the last days. Peter's talking about the last days. And in the second chapter, verse 1, he starts out by saying that there were false prophets among the people. He says, there will be false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who shall secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Now let's go back and talk about these verses for a minute. First he says that there will be false prophets and false teachers among you. Uh, the false prophets is pseudoprophetes. Pseudoprophetes in the, in the Greek. And that is pseudo, once again, false, and of course, prophets. Now, Greek has a word uh, for false prophets. It, as you can see, it's the combination of two words, pseudo-prophetes. And uh, that's the word that's used there. But however, Hebrew does not have a word for false prophets. It simply has the word prophets, and the false part has to be assumed from the context, has to be gathered from the context. This is one of the wonderful things about the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language, actually, when you're reading it, forces you to to go to the rest of Scripture to understand what it means. It forces you to um, gather in the context. Okay, it's not it's, uh, Hebrew. When you're reading the way the Hebrew language is designed, when you're reading Psalm chapter one nineteen, verse seven, it forces you not just to read the verse before and the verse after. That's where we're trained in this culture. In our culture, context means the verse before, the verse after. In Hebrew thinking, the whole rest of the scriptures are the context. That's what we need to understand when we read our New Testament, that the Old Testament is the context of the New Testament. And that's one of our biggest problems. And we're going to actually discuss that uh, later when we do some some comparison of um, uh, evolution and Christianity or evolutionary theology, uh, if you will. Now, to give you an example of that, in Jeremiah chapter 14, Jeremiah 14, 13 through 15, here's what it says. Then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, ye shall not see the sword. Now, it says, behold, the prophets say unto them. Now, in the, in, in the, in the Septuagint, it says pseudoprophetes, okay? The same word that's in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 
But in Hebrew, it just says, it's just Nabi. It's just the usual word for a prophet, a Navi. And, and so the fact that they're false prophets has to be gathered from the context. Well, you're going to see that in just a minute. He says, they have prophesied. Oh no, back to verse 13. Behold, the prophets say unto them, ye shall not see the sword, neither shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. That's one of the, the very first characteristics of a prophet. Now, I'm not saying in scripture that uh, that prophets are not uh, designed by God to give you any good news, but that's the first thing that I would be weary of when someone's prophesying, that it's almost like the fortune cookies and the astrological, um, astro- excuse me, a- astrology charts and so forth, that it seems to be always the good news. It's almost as if God... Uh, places when the, within the prophets a truth that you'll recognize that it seems that false prophets are usually identified with great news. Guess what? Nothing's going to happen to you. Only good is going to happen to you. But once again, I want, I want to make it perfectly clear they are capable of, of doing good things, but that doesn't seem to be the trend as we read the context of prophets throughout Scripture. So he's telling these people, there's not, no, no, there's nothing to worry about. I'll give you peace in this place. And then Yahweh said unto me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. Thus saith the Lord, you, okay, never mind. Um, uh, I did not send them, neither have I commanded them anything, neither spoke unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their own heart. Therefore, Yahweh says concerning these prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not, yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. The very thing that they say is not going to happen happens to them, in other words. And so here's one example uh, of these um, of what these false prophets and false teachers. In other words, when he says false prophets and false teachers, how do we how do we identify them? Well, the scriptures have already done that. That's why context is so important. Deuteron- the combination of Deuteronomy chapter thirteen and eighteen both teaches that um, a false prophet is identified by first of all he prophesies falsely, but even if he does prophesy correctly, in other words, even if you did win that car and get that vacation and get that girl, okay. Uh, if he leads you away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's a false prophet. So either way, either way. So we have an identification of these guys. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, starting in verse 9, it says, My heart within me is broken because of the prophets, and all my bones shake, and I am like a drunken man and, a ma- and like a man whom wine hath overcome because of Yahweh and because of the words of his holiness. For the land is full of adulterers, because of swearing the land mourneth, the pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up and their course is evil and their force is not right. In other words, what have they done according to, 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 uh, what all of Torah says? They've turned away from the, from the, uh, the laws and commandments that I have given you. This is the identification of what the false prophets and false teachers will do. They will take you away from my word. Well, I hate to say this, but the creation and the literalness of his creation and what he did is part of that that Peter is going to say that they're going to turn away from turn you away from as well. He says in verse 11, For both the prophet and the priest are profane. Yes, in my house have I found their wickedness. In my house I have found their wickedness. So, are, you know, are we talking about people outside of God's people? No. 
Then he says, Wherefore their way shall be unto them like a slippery path in the darkness. They shall be driven on and fall into them, and I will bring evil upon them, even the year of their judgment, saith Yahweh. For I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria, and they have prophesied in Baal, and caused my people Israel to err. He says, I have also seen in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers, that none shall return from his wickedness. And they are all unto them like unto Sodom, and to its inhabitants, inhabitants like unto Gomorrah. He says, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with wormwood, and make them drink the water of gall. For from them the prophets of Jerusalem is profaneness gone forth into all the land. They speak visions. It says, They hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. Don't listen to them. For they uh, they make you vain and they speak a, a vision of their own heart. Now listen carefully to that because it's going to come up later. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. And they say unto those who despise me, Yahweh have said, You shall have peace. And they say unto everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, No evil shall come upon you. And you see the trend that seems to go along with these prophets. Don't worry. Don't worry about the evil that's going to come. God's going to take you away from that. You're not going to have any evil. None of this stuff is going to happen to you. It's only going to happen to the post-tribulationists, I suppose. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for uh, in this first CD. The next time um, uh, we meet, we are going to uh, finish uh, Peter's comments in contrasting uh, false prophecies and false teachers with a, um, a skewed view of the beginning and creation and so forth. And then we're going to get into some science. We're going to get into some wonderful facts about what science had to say, has to say. And we're going to compare um, evolutionary uh, theology with the theory of evolution and organic evolution as well. And I think you're going to see some amazing uh, parallels as to where our modern uh, religious uh, philosophies and doctrines really come from. So, in the meantime, cling to your roots that your days may be long and that you will prosper in everything you set your hand to do. Till we see you next time, Shalom Aleichem.